Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Amen. Thanks, Cameron. Uh, as you're opening your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, um, I'm going to pray briefly just for a moment. God had inspired men compose what we're about to read in the rest of the Gospels and the rest of your New Testament for the same reason that Jesus healed this woman, which is that he loves you and he wants to speak to you and to help you see who he is, all of his character, all of his intent, all of his wisdom, all of his sovereignty, all of his power. So I'm going to ask the Lord briefly to help us to see um, his heart for us and for his world that he created. So we'll be in Luke 8, verses 40 through 56, but just give me a brief moment to ask him to help us. Abba Father, you have never changed. Never. And what you reveal to us in your word about your mercy towards people who are unclean, sinful, dead in their sins and trespasses, rebellious in heart, and in posture towards you, your mercy towards such people is exactly the same today as it was when Luke composed this. Help us to see that you are worthy of our full worship and our whole hearts and the rest of our lives. Help us to see it from your word, which is inspired, is inerrant, and is meant to sanctify us and make us more like your son. I ask this in his name. Amen. All right, well, let's read uh, the passage together. So Luke 8, 40 through 56, we're going to see two stories told side by side for a reason. Verse 40, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him. There's no question posed to Jesus, and yet he answered him. Do not fear. Only believe. 
and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. It's God's word. Let's take a look at the crowds here. So why does Luke tell us that these crowds are surrounding Jesus? He says in verse 40 that they were waiting for him. In verse 42, that they were pressing around him. In verse 40, he also says that they welcomed him. And in verse 45, they were surrounding him. Why? Why does Luke want us to see that you have this mob of people who are coming to Jesus and desiring to see something from him? And one of the things that you're shown in the Gospels over and over and over again is that Jesus is not forgettable. He provokes responses from the hearts and the postures and the mouths of people. You see it in Jairus. You see it in this crowd. You're about to see it in Jairus' house. Jesus is taken notice of. He is sought. He is disbelieved. Elsewhere in the Gospels, he is hated. Luke and the other Gospels help us to see that Jesus is someone no one avoided altogether. He is either a cornerstone on which a new eternal life is built or... He's a stumbling stone over which a life trips and is destroyed. But he is never altogether avoided, ignored, unreacted to, missed. The Gospels tell us stories of crowds of people reacting to Jesus and shouting Hosanna, saying that he has a demon, wanting him to become king or push him over a cliff for a reason. There's a reason Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John want us to see that Jesus is eliciting this kind of reaction from people. There's a reason we're shown that his words confound the Pharisees and his silence mystifies Pilate. What we're seeing is what happens when Shakespeare enters Hamlet. The author of this grand drama that we're all in has entered the story. And when he does, demons react and beg not to be cast into the abyss, but instead to be sent into pigs, not knowing how that's going to end. And and demons who are inside of people provoke reaction from those people because the author of the story has entered it. Luke wants us to know that Jesus is the star around which history orbits. He's the healer all the sick must flock to, and we are all sick. He's the cathedral that our towns should be built around. He's the foundation that our homes should be built on. He's the covenant keeper that our marriage covenants should be sustained by. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is the, is the center of this story that we are in, and he is the only one who can play that role. He's the only one who can be what Jesus can be. He's the only one who can do what Jesus can do. He is the author of the story that we are in. So the question I asked myself at least once this week as I was reading this passage over and over again is, does he play that role in my day-to-day life. Is he, honestly, truly, when I wake up in the morning, when I'm changing diapers or here at work, or 
bringing dinner home, when I'm doing those things, when I'm living day-to-day, mundane, boring, rote, repetitive life, is Jesus the star around which my life orbits? Because he's supposed to be. And he's the only one who can successfully play that role. Is he the spool around which my biography and my legacy will be wrapped? This woman, this woman who had the bleeding disorder for 12 years, the most important day of her life was the day that Jesus healed her, cleansed her, and called her daughter. Is that how my biography is going to read? It should be. I don't think that I'm there yet, but it should be, and I want it to be. So the crowds surround Jesus. Let's look at the woman. She had had an affliction for 12 years, 12 years. You know what happened 12 years ago? The first iPad came out. That's how long ago 12 years ago was. This is my first iPad. It took 12 years for me to get one. A a little kid who was born 12 years ago could be going to high school orientation this fall. That's a long time. And this woman had lived all of that time bleeding. And not just in physical pain. She was in relational pain and religious pain, which I'll show you in a minute. She had suffering every single day for 4,300 or more days. That's 4,000 plus nights of anxious sleep. That's 600 Sabbath dinners. That's enough time that if she had nieces and nephews who were young children when the bleeding started, they might be setting out on their own and starting families by now. And all of it, spending money to new doctors, hoping and hoping and hoping each time that this this would be the treatment that successfully resolved her, her bleeding, that this would be the one that left her healed and never getting it. Throughout all of Jairus's little girl's life, there is a reason why Luke tells us that she had been bleeding for 12 years and that Jairus's daughter was 12 years old. We're supposed to see something. All throughout Jairus' little girl's life, her first words, her first steps, learning to cook, learning to play, learning God's word, this woman had bled and bled and bled and bled, and she had been unclean the entire time and unable to worship with God's people. That's her affliction. Let me show you her healing. This is what John Calvin says about this woman's faith. John Calvin In his commentary on Luke says, Christ bestows high commendation on her faith. And this agrees with what I have lately noticed, that God deals kindly and gently with his people, accepts their faith, though imperfect and weak, and does not lay to their charge the faults and imperfections with which it's connected. It was by the guidance of faith, therefore, that this woman approached to Christ. Her faith is not perfect, and yet Jesus deals gently with it and heals her through it. Um, I noticed the crowds did not get to see the actual healing, which if you've ever taken your kids to a sporting event um, and they have to go to the bathroom and that takes like an hour, you know the feeling. I took Bubs to a UC game last year and missed everything interesting that happened because it takes that long for kids to go to the bathroom. So these crowds show up and they're expecting to see something miraculous. They've all come for that reason. Here's the guy from Nazareth who's been doing all these crazy things. And they don't get to see a flash of light or hear a sound or feel a buzz or warmth or some kind of aura. They just hear Jesus say the power has gone out of him. And it happened immediately. The word is parakrema. It's instantly She had spent money for 12 years on doctors, I'm sure, fine doctors, with good degrees and great best practices and all the right manuals and all the right training, and they couldn't do a blasted thing for her. Nothing. She'd gotten worse. 
but Jesus instantly heals her. Why does Luke tell us that? Why does he use that word instantly? And why does he tell us a little bit about her biography, about how she had spent all she had to be healed? He wants us to know that this, this Messiah, this Jesus, this Christ, this anointed one, did what no doctor can ever do. What UC Hospital couldn't do, what no OBGYN could do, what no surgeon could do, Jesus did what only Jesus can do for this woman. And just like Jason said, this kind of affliction entered creation. It entered your body and mine. You get migraines? I've got a mom who has epilepsy. Anybody got a relative with cancer? Tumors? Chronic pain in their back? Cystic fibrosis? Spina bifida? These things entered creation because of sin. And Jesus, in a moment, undoes it in this woman, which is what he's going to do on the last day. When we stand on new soil, on a new earth, there will be no more migraines. There will be no more bleeding disorders. There will be no more seizures. There will be no more miscarriages. Jesus hates death. He hates it. All right, let's look at Christ's posture towards her. So we've seen her healing. Let's look at Christ's posture towards her. In verse 47, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. This woman, she, in front of this whole crowd of people who probably knew her, she declares her deepest shame and she declares what Jesus did for her and has, she invokes no HIPAA, Right? She, she tells exactly what was wrong with her and exactly what he healed. And, and I want to show you in Leviticus a, a level of her suffering or a layer of her suffering that may not be immediately present to us. So God had a prescription. A holy God, a fair God, a just God had a prescription for what this woman's life was to be, what she was to do because of her uncleanness. It's in Leviticus 15, verses 25 through 28. I'm going to read it to you. This is not because God is cruel. It's not because he's unfair. But this is what this woman would have been called to live under because of her uncleanness. Leviticus 15, 25 says, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Just like leprosy, which infected our world because of sin, this sort of bleeding has infected our world because of sin. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. But, if she is cleansed, of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. This woman knows that there is a religious and a ritual and a spiritual element to her pain, just like lepers who Jesus heals knows it, just like people who are infected with demonic activity that come to Jesus know it. And yet she shows up and she reaches out 
I think she understood a little bit of Christ's character to even have that boldness, to show up and expect that it was possible that this particular Jewish teacher, that this particular rabbi would heal her, that this particular miracle worker did not see himself as above his people's infirmity. And if she saw that, she was right, which is what we read in Isaiah. Jesus does not see himself as above her uncleanness or removed from her uncleanness. He heals her instantly, and then he does not instruct her to count the seven days. Why? It's not because the Old Testament incorrectly depicts a really harsh God, and Jesus has come to kind of sand off the rough edges. What is he the fulfillment of? He is the fulfillment of the law. He is our high priest. We don't have a Levitical priesthood anymore. We don't sacrifice bulls and goats anymore. It's his blood that cleanses us. And he is the fulfillment of the law for this woman. She is now clean, and he calls her daughter. That, that also, by the way, is not an accident. That's not a coincidence. When Jairus comes up and falls at Jesus' feet, he asks him, please come to my house and heal my only daughter. My monogenes thugater, my only begotten daughter. Come heal my daughter. And everybody watching this would have seen the ruler of their synagogue, the 1% of the 1%, upper crust as you get. Hyde Park, what's another rich neighborhood? I don't, I'm not in that, not in that tax bracket. Um, so here's the ruler of the synagogue falling at Jesus' feet and begging him, come heal my only daughter. For you to see somebody like that, for you to see Carl Linder fall at his feet and beg, you know what a daughter means. You know what it means to have a thugater, a daughter. And Jesus chooses that word to name and title this woman. He calls her daughter. That's not an accident either. Two things are now newly true of this woman. She is a daughter and she is clean. And Luke wants us to see only Jesus could make either of those things true. Also in verse 47, let me show you one other very beautiful thing about Christ's posture towards her. It says, when she saw that she had not escaped notice, or when she saw that she had not been hidden, that's a beautiful thing. She did not escape notice. Of the people, I'm sure she did. I'm sure any of them who knew her would have, that's the, that's the unclean lady with the bleeding disorder. And I'm sure of the rabbis of Capernaum or of the religious leaders of her day, she probably would have escaped notice too. But she had not escaped notice of this Christos, this Messiah, this anointed one. That's a beautiful thing. Um, I want to show you something. Uh, if you can put up those, those two words there, Nathan. Okay, so... I just want to point something out for you, if this laser pointer works. I never did this in high school, like at assemblies, tried to get the principal in the cornea. So I don't know if I'm using this right. There we go. You see it? All right. So I want to show you this. Did Cameron, did you preach the woman with the, who, who uh, came to Jesus and washed his feet, kissed his feet? Was that you? I think you preached that. Yeah, I think you did. So... In that story, Jesus says something to the woman who was sexually sinful. He says right here, the faith of you, your faith, has saved you. Go in peace. 
And this right here is from our passage, what he says to the woman who had the bleeding disorder. And your ESV probably translates it made well, which is fine, but do you notice that they're the exact same words? Your faith has saved you. Same word is up here in the woman, the sexually sinful woman. Your faith has saved you or translated made you well. Go in peace. There is no way that's an accident. There is no way that Jesus said the same thing to these two women whose names Luke doesn't give us, but who he does want us to see elicited compassion and mercy from our Savior. There's no way. It's not coincidence. Jesus did not simply make her well. He did for her what he did for that woman in the Pharisee's house. He has saved her. He has made her well physically, but he's also saved her and made her clean. All right, let's look at Jairus. Jairus and his daughter. So first off, he's the ruler of the synagogue, which would not necessarily mean that he's a, uh, a religious teacher necessarily. The synagogue could also be like a community center in Jesus' day. He may have known the Torah, may have known the Old Testament, but it's, it's likely he's just a community leader. And we know that this is his only daughter. Here's what Calvin says about Jairus' faith. If you compare the ruler of the synagogue with the centurion, and that's the sermon that Alex preached, if you compare the ruler of the synagogue with the centurion, who was a heathen, you will say that the full brightness of faith shown in the centurion, while scarcely the smallest portion of it was visible in the ruler. He ascribes to Christ no power, this ruler, Jairus, ascribes to Christ no power except through his touching the person, where the centurion said, just say the word and he'll be fine. Jairus is begging Jesus, please come. And when he's received the information of her death, he trembles as if there were no farther remedy. We see then that his faith was feeble and nearly exhausted. And yet, Calvin says, Christ yields to his prayers and encourages him to expect a favorable result and thus proves to us that his faith, however small it might be, was not wholly rejected. Though we have not such abundance of faith as might be desired, there is no reason why our weakness should drive away or discourage us from prayer. If you have some caricature of John Calvin in your head that he was like some kind of severe, I mean, I, I wasn't friends with him, so I don't know, but when I read his writing, man, he does not seem like some cold, icy, you know, this, this is a man who knows what it means to be weak in faith. He knows personally, and he knows through his church in Geneva, and he says that Jesus is not the kind of shepherd who casts away people with weak faith. He responds to them the way a father does, the way a high priest does, a good high priest anyways. So he he does not, even though Jairus has imperfect, shallow, perhaps, faith, he does not send him away. He doesn't refuse to help him. The servant comes in verse 49, and the servant says, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. I have been that servant dozens of times in my life. And the worst part of it is, I am also Jairus in the same moment. So it's happening inside my head. And it goes like this. I... Tell me the problem is too complex. This particular thing is not the sort of thing that's going to get God's attention. You have tried all you can. It's not going anywhere. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Let it go. And I appreciate that Jesus is tender with me and that Jesus still listens when I pray, despite the fact that here I am, 37-year-old Wade, thinking that I have the one problem that is somehow too big for Jesus, too big for the Lord. In, in verse 50, even though apparently Jairus is trembling a bit, Jesus says, do not fear, only believe, she will be well. 
so he contrasts faith and fear, right? If I, if I tell my kids, don't eat an Oreo, but eat an apple, I'm saying these two things are not alike, right? And then when they eat the Oreo anyway, I spank them and I explain to them why, because they're good, but they're not apples. So when he says, don't, don't fear, only believe, he's saying, there's this thing that you're doing right now, this anxiety, this disbelief, this doubt that you have right now. Don't do that. Instead, trust in me. This is the sort of fear that in Isaiah chapter 7, King Ahaz has. His, his heart is described as a tree that is sort of shaking in the wind. And he's not trusting the Lord. He's not trusting Yahweh, Jehovah. And so Isaiah, the prophet, rebukes him for it and commands him to trust Yahweh. This is the sort of thing that's happening inside Jairus, apparently. He's standing here with Jesus, who had just healed a woman, who had spent 12 years and all her money trying to get healed, and doctors couldn't do a lick for her, and Jesus sheds enough power to immediately heal her, and yet Jairus, even though he saw that or heard about it or saw Jesus describe it, he doubts. So Jesus says, don't doubt, believe. And then he takes him back to his house, to his now dead daughter. Verse 51, when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And they were all weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. They laughed at him knowing that she was dead. Yeah. So you have all of these people who know good and well, thank you very much, Jesus, what a dead body looks like. I'm sure if the coroner of Capernaum had been there, he would have condescendingly pushed up his spectacles and tapped his little clipboard, indicated the time of death. I know, Jesus, my profession. And that's true to a degree. They, they do know what dead bodies look like. They have seen dead bodies. They're not exactly wrong. But what they're laughing is doing, what they're laughing is doing is the same thing that Jairus is trembling was doing, which is to doubt that this particular Messiah, this particular rabbi, is here with power that they've never seen before. These people know, just like the doctors knew, about disorders and death and affliction. What they don't know, what they don't know is Jesus. Everything in creation... Everything, from this woman's bleeding disorder for 12 years that she suffered under, to Jairus' little girl's death, everything is a part of a story that is meant to glorify Christ. Everything that we see, everything that we experience, all our pain is a part of a story that is meant to glorify Christ. In John chapter 9, uh, there's a man who is born blind. My wife and I read this story a lot when um, we, uh, we went through a couple of scares and we lost one child, we lost one baby. Um, and we read John chapter 9 quite a bit. And the reason is that there's this blind man who's sitting there, and the disciples ask, who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? And Jesus' answer kind of became the lodestar, the, the true north for Sarah and I during those seasons of suffering and anxiety. It's not that this man sinned, Jesus says, or his parents. But this has happened to glorify God which is very similar to what he says about Lazarus' death. And when you see affliction and suffering and death and pain through that lens, if you love the Lord, 
If you want your life and this, this grand drama that we're in to be a story about his glory, that is incredibly comforting and incredibly clarifying. So they can laugh all they want to, but in a minute, they're going to feel like idiots. Verses 54 through 55, taking her by the hand, he called saying, child arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat. Again, immediately she arises. Luke wants us to see again that this happens instantaneously. Jesus, the word of God through Jesus Christ is the most powerful spark in existence. And one day that same speaker will raise our dead bodies to life. All right, let me finish this way. So what? So if this is who he is, if this is who he is for this bleeding woman, and if this is who he is for Jairus' little girl and for Jairus and for Jairus' wife, what does that mean for you and for me in 2022? Because it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to heal our physical afflictions, and it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to raise anyone to life that we'll ever see. But it does mean something. So what? Here's the first thing. I'm going to have two for you. And the first one is the one that's less happy than the second one. Understand, know, be aware that suffering and affliction and pain may be how he draws you to himself and to a dependence on himself. He drew Jairus to himself such that Jairus said, please, please come to my house through the death of his little girl. And he drew this woman to himself through her bleeding disorder. Um, upstairs in my bedroom, I've got 23 notebooks that house the last 18 years or so of my life. And uh, I write down in them a play-by-play of as each kid is born. And then I read it to them on their birthday. So Judah's birthday, uh, third birthday, second birthday. He's two or three. It's hard to remember. Oh, the date's right there. <laughs> so, um, we went to his first ultrasound, and, and, you know, we'd been through four ultrasounds, and we'd lost one baby. So, five pregnancies, and you feel like you've got this down. Like, I know there's not going to be an ESPN magazine at the Good Sam ultrasound waiting magazine, or waiting room, and I'm going to have to read Red Book or whatever it is, Ladies Home Journal. Like, we got this. It's an, I know where the coffee is. We sit down. I know they're going to do their whole spiel about if we don't want to know the gender. Uh, but then she says some things that I haven't heard before. Um, and then she calls it. We sit there for a little bit, and she calls in a doctor, uh, which has not happened before and hasn't happened since. And uh, apparently this baby has uh, some thickness that is really abnormal on his neck. And it's a cue for Down syndrome or spina bifida, a couple of disorders, a couple of diseases that they tell us about. So we, uh, we get the gender written down. We go a couple of blocks from here. And uh, we open it up and we read it together and we cry. And we pray. And we know that even if this baby has something terrible that significantly reduces his lifespan or makes it impossible for him to get married or means that he'll live with us for the rest of his life, that God is knitting him together inside Sarah. Uh, And then for the next five or six months, I fast, uh, I think two days a week, if I remember right, 
Monday and Tuesday and pray and say our praise. We ask our pastor at the time to pray. And for five or six months, it feels like everything is just on a knife's edge. Because he's being formed in there, and I can see him kicking, and I can know that she's getting her baby center updates and telling us all that's happening, but she hasn't really told much to the kids, and I haven't either. And, but we know when we look at each other, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray. So then, the, the play-by-play of him being born. I, I had never felt as connected to the Lord that I can remember on behalf of one of my kids as those six months when I was chasing after Jesus Christ to do right and to do good and to, and to work what seemed at the time a miracle in the life of this little, little man, little boy. So let me just read you a little bit of what happened that morning. June 26, 2019, woke up for work to a text from Sarah saying, He'll have a June 26th birthday. She was disappointed because her birthday is the 27th. She's resting in the bathtub now. We'll leave shortly. A little bit later. Lord, please let him be well. You know this baby. You made him. He's yours. Please let him be physically well and please save him by grace through faith. Draw him to yourself. Please don't let him have Down syndrome or spina bifida or any serious condition like that, Father. Grant him to experience your creation in fullness, please. And if it pleases you to marry and lead a family to you and, and to serve your church and your son, please. A little bit later, she's still having contractions. The whole universe and everything that happens to it and in it and to us and to me is in my good father's hands. He is working it together and I can trust him and I can have the freedom to act in faith and not fear. Please let this baby be well. Just a couple more. He is the door, John 10, 9. I was reading John in between Sarah screaming. I think this was the second time she tried to go natural. That's an experience. You are my door, Jesus. Please be this baby's too. Give this baby boy abundant life, Lord, not just life without physical frailty. And then I wrote the word contraction because I was timing them but abundant life in your Holy Spirit. I rest all on you, Jesus. You're it. You're my shepherd. Be this baby boy's too, I beg you. And then, he's here. He was born at 1037. I wept, man. Hard to explain. I've loved and prayed for this one so much. We both feel pretty good about Judah. I think I meant the name but I feel pretty good about him now too. If you ever come to the 11, he is in the back holding a little plastic guitar pretending to be Jason. It's an experience, man. And God used probably the second hardest stretch of Sarah's life and of my life, we would say. He used that to solidify and strengthen my faith in him in such a way that I don't ever remember a vacation or a holiday, or any, any good, tender blessing from his hands doing. He, he did it through this. And that's how he did it for Joseph. And it's how he did it for King David. And I want you to know, it is very possible, it's how he'll do it for you. And when it comes, 
view it as medicine applied by a loving physician. Don't view it as some kind of mistake that snuck by God, which is the temptation. So that's the first thing. Second thing, and then I'll close. The second one is a little happier. Just be intimately aware of the character and the heart of Jesus, your Messiah. Do you see how he talked to this woman? Daughter, your faith has saved you or made you well. Go in peace. Do you see how he talked to this little girl? He made sure she had lunch after raising her to life. That's his heart. That's his will. That's his character. That's his intention for you and for me. Don't ever doubt. Don't ever doubt the goodness of our shepherd. All right, let's pray. Abba Father, you govern all the affairs of men. You ordain all that comes to pass. One of us is going to have tragedy in the coming year. Probably more than one of us. But when it comes, it comes through the hands of of a God who is absolutely for us. And your son has never and will never change nor forget us, lose sight of us. We will never escape his notice. Please help us to remember that, to love you for it, to be sustained by it. I ask your blessing on our lives, on our worship, on our families, on our singleness on our jobs, on our parenting. Please be glorified through us, Lord, now and forever. In Christ's name, amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.